News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Chaos at train stations over in England. Uh, they had wildfires that erupted yesterday. Emergency services that were strained to the breaking point, all because of the incredible heat wave they had going on there over the last couple of days. Now, that scenario is something we are very familiar with. We dealt with that a year ago here. As for what's happening over there today, well, it is slightly cooler, which is a good thing. I mean, they set a record of 40.3 degrees on Tuesday in the eastern part of England, and they are now just trying to figure out just how much damage was caused by all of this. Joining us now is Vicki Barker, CBS correspondent in London for more on this. Hello, Vicki. Thank you for being here. Happy to be here. What is it like there today? Does it feel like the area is just kind of recovering from this heat? Yes. Oh, my goodness. It is blessed relief. I mean, you know, all all of us have spent, you know, a couple of nights star fishing on top of the bed sheets because who has air conditioning in this country? Um, And yesterday was really, truly unbelievable. I mean, unprecedented heat, and you could really feel it. And you're talking about damage, and oh, my goodness, I mean, The London Fire Brigade had its busiest single day since the Second World War. At one point, there were 12 fires breaking out simultaneously around the British capital. Um, You know, a normal day, the fire brigade gets 300, 350 calls about fires. Yesterday, they had 2,600. And these are just... You know, a couple might have been started by barbecues, but these were just spontaneous brush fires caused by tinder dry grass in this record breaking heat. So what is going to be the result of this? Like, I know when we had this happen here a year ago, there was a lot of study that came after to figure out what went wrong, how they can adapt. Are those conversations happening? Well, in the what went wrong department, what went wrong is, you know, well, Prince Charles got up and sort of said, I told you so. I've been saying that uh, global warming and human-induced climate change is a growing menace to us all. And, you know, I would say the scientific consensus on this side of the Atlantic is that is what is going on with this heat wave this summer. I mean, you know, Western and Southern Europe, they have a fire season every summer, true, but this one came earlier and with more ferocity than ever before. But the fact of the matter is, Britain's infrastructure was not built to withstand these kind of extreme conditions. This is normally a temperate climate. I mean, I, I, mean, I remember usually the only difference between summer and winter in the UK is at the end of summer, I put away my summer clothes. But at the end of winter, I take out my summer clothes and don't put away my winter clothes. Right. Because, you know. Every other day, you're going to need your winter clothes because that's what an English summer is like. But no longer. It's it's really um, it's it's going to pose a couple of really existential questions to this country's you know engineers and builders. How do you build railroad tracks that can withstand hundred degree heat? They were painting them white in an attempt to reflect the heat, and eventually they closed down two of the main national north south rail lines for fear of the tracks warping and Luton airport closed for an hour the other day because you know the tar on the runway was melting that's the kind of stuff that's going to have to be re-engineered the london underground trains most of those carriages don't have air conditioning 
You know, so there's there's going to have to be a lot of retrofitting, um, and not all of it's going to be possible in the near future. Any idea of the toll that this took on people's health? It's you know that's that isn't yet clear. I mean, they were expecting thousands uh, of excess deaths. That said, the London Ambulance Service said that although they'd seen elevated numbers of emergencies. Their feeling was that Brits had, by and large, heeded the warnings because the officials knew this was coming and they were telling people, stay indoors, stay hydrated, do not attempt to travel anywhere. I mean, usually when the sun shines and the temperature goes up, you know, Brits are out there basking in the (laughs) usual sun and warmth. And you did see thousands and thousands of people head to the beach. but, um, But by and large, I mean, Lord knows we did, you know, opened the windows wide, closed the curtains, and turned on those fans. Oh, it sounds like it was a lot of people trying to cope. Vicki, <laughs> thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay. Appreciate that. That's Vicki Barker, CBS correspondent in London, talking about trying to recover from the heat wave. Temperature is down today, a reported temperature of about 26 degrees. That is still very warm. I mean, that's what we're expecting this week in, in and about that. But that is a huge relief for them from the 40 plus degrees that they had been having over the last couple of days. And as Vicky pointed out, they are just not cut out or, or even built for those kinds of temperatures. Their houses are built to keep heat in, not to let heat out. And so, yes, a big struggle. And they will now go through a lot of what we went through a year ago and trying to figure out what the next steps are. How do we cope with this if and when this happens again? So, yeah, there will be fallout from that, I am sure. This is Mornings with Simi. We heard this morning that the inflation rate last month has been pegged at 8.1% by StatsCan. That means everything got more expensive by 8.1% last month on average and means people are having to make tough decisions about their bills, right? Maybe you're cancelling some subscriptions, perhaps Netflix. Let's talk to Raji Sohal about that this morning. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I would say actually, for me, this uh, the whole inflation thing is affecting like tiny decisions, small decisions, including the streaming services that we subscribe to in our household. I've gotten to the point now where if a streaming service has just say, one show that I really want to watch, I'm not going to subscribe. Whereas before I would have been like one show I really want to watch. Sure, sign me up for the whole streaming service. And those one shows can be uh, really important, like the the biggest shows. In fact, like you look at Stranger Things, and that show has been so wildly popular that it's held up the streaming service. So many people subscribe for just that show. So it it does make a difference. Um, and what's been happening with Netflix? just lately, I mean, it hasn't been a great year for them. Um, They experienced their biggest subscriber loss in 25 years, um, steep drop in share price as a result. And then they've just announced that they lost 1 million subscribers. Uh, They were actually semi-expecting to lose even more than that. So I guess silver linings. They're Um, counting it as a win. They're like, win, yay, we only lost a million subscribers. (laughs) I think they're probably in for losing more. Um, because although they started out with that very simple pay structure, uh, now they have, have tried to diversify it with uh, this tiering structure thing. Uh, they're cracking down on password sharing 
And I've talked to a lot of people who say that that password sharing thing is what made them watch so much Netflix to begin with and that they were happy to bow out and just uh, focus on watching something else or turn to books and, uh, and read those again. Remember books? <laughs> <laughs> Remember books. I am a huge book reader. I know you are. I love I to know. read my books, but you know what? I think this is so hard for people because when something like Netflix came along Everybody thought, oh, this is great. Like, this is so unusual. I can do this. And maybe they cut back on their cable package or whatever the case was. But now it feels like everybody has a streaming service and they're all like $20 a month or 50, you know, $15, $20. And people are having to make some tough decisions now about what they keep and what they get rid of. Yeah, for sure. And if there's a few streaming services that you enjoy, um, if you enjoy several, you can rack up $100 a month easily. And you look at that over the year. And yeah, that's a good chunk of change. Um, I've also heard from some people that the, although they want choice, like they do want a smorgasbord of uh, different shows and movies that they can watch, uh, if subscription prices go up and they have to watch ads, it's uh, that's a little too much. You know, it's giving up too much. I'm finding it really difficult with uh, some, I've been noticing more and more ads pop up on um, some of the subscriptions for out of country stuff. And I know that those companies are doing it to increase their revenue, obviously, but I have been so trained out of like conditioned out of watching ads that it's really hard to get back into it to the point that I'm like, okay, I guess I won't watch. I feel like there's so many things. This is just another example of the ways in which that really demonstrate to us that society is changing, right? There's everybody talks about that economy, the gig economy, and how it was it was being subsidized by you know venture capitalists because Uber wanted to you know get you hooked on their service, so it was like super cheap. And now now it's not super cheap anymore, and we're having to figure out like, oh, can we actually afford to do this? Like the delivery services, you name it. This to me is just another example of that that we're finally starting to see the the real price and having to deal with the reality of the situation. Yeah, but first they got us hooked, didn't they? Exactly, right? <laughs> so That's how they do I it. feel like, yeah, we all changed our viewing habits so much as a result of Netflix. Netflix really changed the terrain. And now that they're going back on so much of that, uh, it's it feels like a little too late for us. Uh, like well, we've, we've changed our habits as a result of them um, doing things differently. Can I also squeeze in another cute oh, little story? Listen, I love this story. Yes. Tell us about, we love a, a story about a cute dog. Okay, well, in this one, well, people, sometimes they lose their dog for a few hours, maybe it's a few days, and and your dog will come back maybe in a different mood, maybe it's got a few scrapes, but there was this missing beagle, a real cutie, who was returned home to its owners in the UK with a ribbon. So what had happened was it escaped, it uh, got entered into a dog show, and it took third place. And what happened was that this man who was himself driving to a dog show with, with his own dogs, he saw the beagle on the side of the road, he brought it to the event, decided to enter it into a contest, and yeah, the rest is history. So cute. I love the story. I also love the picture of him with the little, like the yellow ribbon on him. So can you it's imagine adorable. you're the owners? And like, so I often say that about like my cat, right? When I look at her, I'm like, where have you been? What have you been doing? And so then All the, the dog comes back, right? And comes with the ribbon on it. You're thinking, what kind of adventure have you been on? This seems to me like, Raji, somebody needs to write a children's book about it. That's what you should do. I'll do that. And then I'll look for the movie rights. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, the get rich quick scheme, right? Then you can afford Netflix once that happens. 
Yeah, totally. I would I wouldn't mind if people did this with if I had a dog and go off and dog sit for me for a few hours, give my dog an adventure, return it with a cute ribbon. I'm down with that. Some dog randomly came in third place in the competition. I would say that's a very well-behaved beagle. I think the owner should be rather proud and say, totally. "Wow, we did a good job. Good job. Can't lose your kid and have it come back winning a contest. That doesn't work <laughs> like that." Uh Raji, thank you. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of questions about what has been going on with oversized trucks hitting overpasses in Metro Vancouver. The most recent one was just the other day, right? The Glover Road overpass in Langley. The one before that was the 192nd overpass, you know, on Highway 1. It's just causing a nightmare for traffic for our infrastructure too. So the Ministry of Transportation and Infrastructure has said that over the last year, there have been about eight of these incidents. Incidents of overheight traffic hitting overpasses or, you know, something overhead. And so what they've done now is they've put out their list of carriers that have been, quote, cancelled for cause. So essentially they claim that they are stepping up enforcement of this and that they are going after the companies that, you know, have had trucks where this happens. And that means the carrier has been given an unsatisfactory safety rating, so it's not allowed to operate any commercial motor vehicle, and they're going to update that list every month. But we thought, well, what else can be done here? Is there a problem? Like, why are so, it seems like, so many truck drivers having a problem with these overheight areas? Is it a road situation? Does something need to be fixed? Well, joining us now is Kelly Scott, president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association. Kelly, thanks for being with us. Morning, Simi. So tell me, what do you make of all this? What's been going on? Oh, boy. It's, it's uh, you know, you, you wonder if it's just the uh, abnormal times right now that we've got so many truckers on the roads and, and this is causing us some problems. The, the infrastructure sound. I mean, it's, it's I mean, these structures have been around for 20, 30, 40 years. So, so that's not changed. Uh, I guess the, the change has been the, uh, the number of trucks and, and the different loads that they've been bringing um, through our, our city and, and, and through the infrastructure. And, and I guess now the change has been um, uh, the overheight vehicles that are coming through. Uh, are, are the people taking the time to check that out and, and do the due diligence, which by and large, the, the trucking industry is doing a phenomenal job of doing that. We do have these past eight incidents I was looking at Google last night. It looks like we're not the only jurisdiction in North America going through this. Um, but it is a challenge to us. And, and the two things, it, a, it's a challenge to when we hit the infrastructure. But really, our real concern is the traveling public, the impact on them. And, and how can we uh, make our infrastructure safer and better? Um, you've, you've noted that the uh, ministry going forward is going to increase the clearance to five meters from, uh, I believe it's about 4.5 meters currently, which has done us well for the last uh, 50 years. But um, going forward, there, there has to be something looked at or, or reduce the height that the truckers are allowed to bring through our, our corridors. Yeah, okay, so where is the confusion happening then? So is that is that height restriction, is it too low given the busyness with trucks on our roads these days? Well, you know, with those eight incidents, I would say yes, but I would expect that you'd probably have 10,000 truckers go through there daily, that there are zero incidents. Um, uh, and, and what you don't know on the incidents, uh, were they strapped down? Were uh, they on the correct trailer? 
there's a whole bunch of uh, methods that you can use to reduce the height of a load in terms of trailer height and things like that. So yeah, it's really a matter of understanding what, what caused those incidents and then was it um, um, dry or, you know, or human error that, that caused that incident. And, and, and those need to be looked at. But it, it's not norm. It's, uh, as I said earlier, we get uh, daily. You see how many trucks go through our city and our infrastructure with zero incidents of, uh, due to the height. So it's these abnormal situations that are causing a lot of heartache, a lot of grief, and, and a lot of uh, expense to the uh, public purse strings to fix. I can imagine. So as in your ex- area of expertise then, Kelly, you talked about kind of raising the limit to, what, five meters, you were saying? Like, how hard is it for us to do that? Was that have to be something we do moving forward? Uh, it's not like we can go back and, and do them to the existing infrastructure, is it? Yeah, you know, as road builders, we'd love to be doing it to everything. That's extra work for us. But I, I don't think our, our taxpayers would appreciate that. I think going forward, if I read the ministry's uh, statements uh, going forward, they think that uh, they're looking at raising the standards to five meters to accommodate what's, what seems to be a, an issue out there. Uh, what we do with the rest of the infrastructure, Simi, that's a great question. Uh, obviously, there are ways that we can raise those uh, or increase the, the height, if you will, for the trucks going through, but there's a cost to that. Or is it just a matter of education and, and, and enforcement to ensure those loads, which, as I said, 99.9% of them go through correctly, uh, that 0.0% don't, what can we do to, to mitigate and, and, not, and not allow these incidents to occur going forward? How is that set, by the way, that standard? Is that like a universal standard that every jurisdiction uses? Oh, I, good question, Simi. I don't know that. I don't that. I would expect that when BC built build, uh, our infrastructure, they would have been looking out at other jurisdictions. And we do know that X move from province to province. Or some, my assumption would be that it would be a fairly standard height restriction across the country. Um, um, because, as I say, they go interprovincial, and we do have them coming in from the United States as well. So they're crossing the border um, down south right. of us as well as coming east to west. That makes sense. Okay, now, Kelly, I know last time we talked to you, it was about how busy you were in light of all the flooding and everything uh, last fall. So tell me, how is road building and construction going these days? Yeah, Simi, it's going very, very well. Uh, the contractors have adapted, adapted, adapted. Oh, we seem to have... Most, most Kelly? of the emergency repairs are done. And and now we're into the uh, fixing of the bridges that need to be done on the Coquihalla. So uh, it's good. The industry has capacity for more work, and uh, we're, we're continually looking. But the government has decided to continue to work on the Coquihalla, as well as all the other infrastructure that needs investment. So it's not that we're going to just work on the Coke. It's the rest of the infrastructure throughout British Columbia that uh, we'll be working on all summer. And you have the crews. I know that was a concern, too, last time, as you were bringing in people from everywhere. Yeah, we do have the crews, and we're very mindful, too, that a lot of our large projects, such as Site C, it's coming to the end of its life, so there will be workers available uh, coming off those job sites and, and the Patella Bridge, too. So so this industry is, is fluid. As one project ends, another one starts, and that's the beauty of it. It's uh, And we do have some significant projects coming to the end of their life that will uh, make available to us workers that can continue to do the jobs they do for British Columbia. Well, the work is getting done. Kelly, thank you.
You bet, Simi. Thank you very much. Kelly Scott, president of the BC Road Builders and Heavy Construction Association, talking about, you know, trucks hitting overpasses, things that need to be done, things that need to be fixed out there. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. Moving forward, they're talking about raising the height limit on these overpasses, which is probably a good thing, but that doesn't help us when it comes to all of the existing infrastructure that we have out there. That is the question. What do you do with all of that? And how do you fix this situation? Situation. Ministry of Transportation says they are going to have more enforcement of this. They are going to continue to publish their list of carriers that have found to essentially uh, be cancelled for cause, they said. That means that they've been given an unsatisfactory safety rating so that those carriers are no longer allowed to operate any commercial motor vehicle. But it sounds like the challenge is on there. This is Mornings with Simi issue of their ERs, their emergency rooms being closed for periods of time. Last weekend, a number of different communities had to deal with this, including Ashcroft. And now the mayor of Ashcroft is speaking out about the essential, the consequences of having that happen. Joining us now is Barbara Roden, the mayor of the village of Ashcroft. Mayor Roden, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me, Simi. So tell me, first of all, how often does the ER close in Ashcroft? It was a fairly regular occurrence until January this year when they put us on a, I'm going to put it in air quotes, temporary hours to deal with the um, the ER or the staffing shortages at that time due to COVID. And so we used to have it open until January of this year <clears throat> from six in the evening on a Friday until eight in the morning on a Monday. And they said, all right, we're going to have it open for five hours on Friday evening and then from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Saturday, Sunday. And those temporary hours are still with us. Since those have been instigated, we have not had any closures until this past weekend when we received an, um, a message from Interior Health at 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon saying that the department would be closed for the entire weekend. Okay, so 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, like what do you do at that point? You obviously have to let residents know, right? Uh, what happens is the village, uh, we use our social media uh, outlets, we circulate it, we get it out on Facebook. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of chatter <clears throat> amongst community members saying, oh, here we go again. Um, but it, it is usually fairly short notice. And um, I, I know that on, on at least one occasion in the past, that has led to an ambulance not knowing that the ER was closed and taking a patient to the Ashcroft Hospital only to find that it is in fact closed and they had to turn and bypass and go on to Royal Inland in Kamloops. Okay, and is that what happened on the weekend? Can you tell us that story? Uh, what happened on the weekend is a uh, resident was found in cardiac distress. Uh, the person that found them called 911 and was told that the nearest ambulance, the Ashcroft ambulance, was in Clinton doing coverage up there. And so it turned around and came back down, but that's a 25-minute trip. Uh, in the meantime, they did CPR on the person, and it, ordinarily, in a case like that, possibly the hospital might have been an option if the emergency department had been open. It is literally um, a stone's throw from, from where this happened, and of course, the hospital is closed as well, so it was sort of the perfect storm of events with without having either one of those two options available. And this this poor lady, she <clears throat> didn't live very far from the hospital. The ambulance station uh, and the hospital are on, one is beside and one is behind where she lived uh, on the same block. 
Oh, boy. Okay, so then when the ambulance did arrive, Merodin, what happened then? I don't know what happened then. I heard this go down on the scanner um, when when our fire department got a call from Kamloops Dispatch explaining the situation and saying that the ambulance was going to be 20 to 25 minutes away. And so was there anything the fire department could do? So our fire chief went by as a private citizen because he has some medical training and uh, was there when the, the ambulance arrived, but I don't know what happened after that. Okay, so she would have had to have been taken to the Royal Inland Hospital in Kamloops. How far away is that? Um, I can drive from Ashcroft to Royal Inland in about an hour. It's about 95 kilometers. I get an ambulance could do it faster, but I don't know how much faster. So 45, 50 minutes. Right, but you're still talking about an hour and a half for this woman to receive help who lived pretty much within walking distance of a, of a hospital there. So what happened in this particular case? Um, we're, that's what we're trying to find out right now. Well, we know from Interior Health, the cause of the, the ER closure was limited physician availability. So no doctors available to staff the, the emergency department over the weekend. Uh, BC Emergency Health Services, I met with them yesterday. <clears throat> They're going to do a review to see where all the ambulances in the area were um, at that time on Sunday. How did they all get to where they were? Uh, why was the nearest one to Ashcroft 25 minutes away? And and there could be very good reasons because what we have in our small rural areas is not very many ambulances covering a very large area. So if you get an ambulance from Clinton having to transport someone to Kamloops, now there's no coverage in Clinton. So if a call comes in from Clinton, the nearest ambulance goes up to cover. That would probably be Ashcroft. Oh, boy. So now you get the Ashcroft ambulance in Clinton, then a call comes in from Ashcroft, and now you're pulling someone from Logan Lake, which is 40 minutes away, or maybe Merritt, or maybe Lillouette, and that's an hour and a quarter. So, yeah. So in this case, this unfortunately, this woman, she did not make it. And that must be that must be a scary situation for residents now to realize that this this could happen. It is very scary. People have been very you know, concerned because we have watched our health care chipped away uh, bit by bit. We used to have our hospital here used to be a full service hospital. It had 24 seven emergency. It had a maternity suite. It had uh, recovery rooms. They did minor surgery there. And now uh, almost all of that is gone. So people see it as sort of a shell of what it used to be not that long ago. I mean, we're not talking 50 years ago it was all these things. We're talking 15 years ago. Right. And we've just watched it gradually be chipped away. And, I mean, someone said to me yesterday, wow, can you imagine if, if Surrey Memorial Hospital's emergency department was closed for an entire weekend? You'd have people falling over themselves from the Ministry of Health on Monday saying how this is never going to happen again. And it happens time and again in small rural communities and nothing seems to happen. Mayor Roden, listen, thank you very much for your time on this this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Barbara Roden, Mayor of the Village of Ashcroft, talking about what happened in that community with their ER closed this past weekend. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. That right there, that's the sound of one of the most popular sports in the province that is taking over tennis courts everywhere. It is 
pickleball. And boy, is it also wrapped in controversy right now, too. And for that, I'm joined by Raji Sohal this morning. Raji, because it sounds like the tennis people are pushing back. Yeah, they are. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea how full of drama the world of pickleball is. Uh, It's even been in the news. There have been protests in Victoria over closing courts. Uh, The District of North Saanich actually had to hire private security guards to monitor and enforce playing hours. And then we've heard these endless stories about the noise complaints, too. Well, the latest controversy has a group of tennis players in Vancouver who are petitioning the city of Vancouver and the park board to stop catering to the pickleball players. They say that uh, they're being pushed out of more and more courts in Vancouver. And they say that tennis has a robust community. And this new kid on the block, pickleball, is getting an inequitable amount of attention and resources. It's so popular right now. The courts are smaller for pickleball, so you can fit more players on them, which is the argument that a lot of pickleball players make. Um, And then pickleball is multi-generational, so it has more of a family or community feel to it. And matches are short, they're casual, whereas, of course, tennis is its more exclusive in some ways. So I talked to Ed Pilak. He's a spokesperson for a pickleball group here called the West Van Players. Tennis is a great game. The problem with tennis is that young people are so good at it that older people, I'm in my, I'm 70, it, it's very difficult for me to keep up with somebody that's, that's a lot younger. But in pickleball, that can change. There is a, a level of skill that people who play pickleball a lot can play very well against the younger person. So it's, it's a sport that young and old can play together and have a heck of a lot of fun at. In other words, it's very addictive. Our son, Adam, he's 30, and he loves to play pickleball with people in their 60s and 70s. It's a game that all ages can play, and um, you can make it as competitive or non-competitive as you want. And what about noise? Is it a noisy game? Yes, it is. But people realize it's noisy, so... They're putting courts now, pickleball courts, in areas where the noise doesn't play a factor in the community. Um, The reason the 29th and Marine courts were shut down was it was very close. Like right across the street were a group of neighbors. And the neighbors with the pandemic coming in were working at home and were complaining a lot, not only about the noise of pickleball, but the noise of the people that came to play pickleball. And that's part of the game is that you need four people on each court. So if you have four courts, you've got 16 people. When you have a hard ball hitting a hard paddle, you're going to get a noise, a ping, depending on how hard the ball is hit. Okay, this is so interesting, Raji, because it's not just in West Vancouver where people have complained about the noise, right? This has been everywhere. It feels like on Vancouver Island, I know there were big fights about this. In Surrey, there have been fights about this. And now the tennis, I feel people who play tennis are pushing back. I know there's been some petitions out there recently from tennis players who say, listen, we want our courts back. Yeah, so the the change.org uh, petition that's been making its rounds in Vancouver amongst the people in the tennis community, I don't think it's getting very much attention. I even actually talked to, I went to some tennis courts and I talked to people playing tennis at the courts and I got a very mixed response from folks there. Some said, uh, you know what, we actually do have enough courts. We have enough courts. Uh, our games take longer. So, you know, sometimes you don't get to to hit as long as you like. You don't get to stay at the courts for as long as you'd like. But 
that's okay because we do better than most places uh, across the country. One person was telling me in Winnipeg where they lived before and in Toronto where they lived before, they couldn't have dreamed of having as many courts as we have in Vancouver. So other people told me, I oh, we're getting the squeeze. It's not fair. Everyone's giving all this attention to pickleball. And then this thing with the noise complaints, the noise for pickleball is really peculiar. So if I went to a court that was like, I went to a court that was somewhat near some condo buildings, the sound was ricocheting all over the place and it just went on forever. Then the one that I uh, just included here in our piece to share with you, that one was embedded in a park and on one side were it was forested trees and they took a lot of the sound and just absorbed it. So it wasn't actually very loud at all to me. Um, but of course, I didn't live next to it and have to hear it 24-7. What I will say is pickleball is only growing. It is so huge. People bring members of their family, grandma, uh, five-year-olds I saw playing. Everyone's out there playing. It's super social. Lots of people uh, waiting as well because you don't have to wait that long in order to, to get a turn to play. So, I mean, the thing with the tennis is you, you don't get that same kind of like huge multi-generational crowd coming to play. So at some point you got to go, okay, well, what are more people playing right now? And then there's, of course, the thing with space. Tennis takes up more, more space yeah. and Vancouver does not have much space. I did notice that the city of Vancouver actually about eight days ago put out a press release and they were, they're inviting um, Vancouver. They call them picklers. Is that what you call people who play pickleball? Picklers? Anyway. Oh, I didn't know about that. Well, I didn't I know either. actual pickling with jars. So <laughs> I thought I was a pickler of a different kind, but yeah, okay. Apparently. So they their headline is Vancouver picklers invited to play at pop-up pickleball courts. And let me tell you, say that five times fast. That is not easy. <laughs> so what the city of Vancouver is doing or the park board is doing is they're having these pop-up pickleball pilots. Uh, where you can, they're converting temporarily, you know, some tennis courts into pickleball courts for a period of time, for a couple of weeks or for a month. And they're doing this as a pilot project to see like how busy will those be in the community. But listen, I, you know, tennis courts in Vancouver, there may not be a ton of them, but they are busy. Like every, I've had trouble trying to even go hit a few balls in practice if I was trying to play tennis a few years back because they're so busy. I was at Confederation Park uh, last weekend in Burnaby, and I was surprised that the courts weren't being used all day long. Um, and then in North Van, I often see uh, the same tennis courts. I don't know why, but they are often empty. Same thing with a couple that um, I've gone by in New West. Vancouver, yeah, for sure busy. But that's a given, right? It's Vancouver. That is so true. And lots of people need to get out and play some sports. And this is just going to be one more thing that gets people worked up, I think. So entertaining. Uh, thank you. For, are you going to try pickleball now, Raji? I would actually like it if you'd try it with me. I love badminton. And I feel that ping pong is a sport you would be into. And people like it. And a lot of people have told me that play pickleball. If you put the two together, it's kind of like that. So what do you say, Simi? Mm, I would Let's definitely try this. I'm not crossing the bridge, though. You're going to have to come over here. Okay, You're going to have to come over to this side. I will definitely try pickleball. I've been curious about this myself. So we'll see how this goes. I'm in. Okay, Simi. Sign me up. Thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal talking about pickleball versus tennis out there in the community. I know tennis players are saying, hey, 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 what about our tennis courts? We're just signing them all over now to pickleball players. 
people want to play tennis too, if you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com or call our buzz line. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the NDP leadership race has its first candidate, and it is David Eby. Now, he's tackled quite a few portfolios in recent years, Attorney General, Housing. Now he wants to tackle the biggest, and that is being Premier. David Eby joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So what made you decide to jump in? Well, uh, after John shared his surprising news with us and with British Columbians about his decision and and an understandable one uh, for his family and for his health, um, a number of colleagues approached me and uh, and British Columbians and friends and family reached out. Um, and, and their primary interest is in making sure that we continue to deliver for British Columbians, uh, that uh, simply because John is, uh, is focusing on his health uh, doesn't mean that uh, the government needs to get divided and, uh, and turn into a, a divisive leadership race and so on, that we need to stick together. And I think that's why I have 48 of my colleagues supporting me, and, uh, and they think that I'm the person that can help us continue to deliver uh, and to stay uh, unified and focused on British Columbians' interests. And, uh, and I'm very flattered that they think so, and I'm, I'm happy to put my name forward. And 48 is a big number. A lot of them were there last night for your announcement. Does that mean that you're not anticipating anybody else joining this race? Uh, I'm not aware of any of my colleagues who are uh, who are thinking about running, uh, but we're an open party. We're a democratic party. It's literally in the name. Uh, and uh, the race is uh, open to new candidates until October. Uh, so I'm certainly not taking anything for granted. Uh, my team is working hard and preparing for a leadership race, assuming there will be other candidates uh, coming forward. And, uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, if that is the case, there will be a vote in December. So let's say it is you. What would the next two years theoretically be like as a Premier David Eby that would be so different from a Premier John Horgan? Well, a lot would be very similar, uh, focusing on delivering for British Columbians, addressing the cost of living, uh, addressing the challenges in our healthcare system. Um, one of the uh, shifts, though, um, that, uh, that I would be bringing is an increased focus on government building uh, housing for the middle class. I think that, you know, government has never really had to build housing for the middle class. Uh, it's tended to be looked after by the private sector. But what we're seeing in British Columbia, and it's not just in Metro Vancouver, it's across the province, is uh, people can afford housing. They have good jobs, but the, the housing that they need is just not available. And it's all the way from Prince Rupert, uh, Fort St. John, uh, all the way down to uh, Metro Vancouver in the interior. And in some of these communities, uh, astonishing to people in the lower mainland, there's just not developers to build this housing. Uh, and in the Lower Mainland, uh, there are lots of opportunities for us to partner with First Nations, to use public land, and to partner with the private sector to deliver this uh, housing that we desperately need. So a real focus on building uh, attainable housing for the middle class would be a shift there. Right. Now, the opposition, of course, is already gearing up for this. You've got the Green Party saying, well, listen, you're just going to be more of the same and it hasn't been working. You've got the BC Liberals saying that you haven't made a huge impact on the biggest issues of BC, that you've been in charge of them, but you haven't fixed anything, that we still have too much crime, we still have housing problems. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, I, uh, I would encourage people to look at the files that I have been working on, you know, uh, where ICBC was um, uh, when I took over that file and where it is today uh, from losing more than a billion dollars to breaking even and mailing out rebate checks to British Columbians and uh, some of the lowest rates in Canada. Uh, I can deliver results for people. I have delivered results for people. Uh, and I think that's why I have the support of my colleagues. And that's why I would like the support of British Columbians. And the only way to get it, in my opinion, is not going to be through press releases from the opposition uh, alleging this or that. It's going to be by delivering results on the ground for British Columbians. 
And that was the case for uh, that work on ICBC. It's the case for issues related to money laundering that I've worked on. It's the case in the opioid litigation that we started that resulted in the biggest uh, class action settlement uh, recovering healthcare costs in Canadian history. Delivering results for British Columbians is what is going to make the difference in the next election. And it's not going to be about attack lines about uh, this or that. What about the issue of, of crime? That's obviously a huge concern for people right now. As Attorney General, was enough done there, do you think, to to help make, make people feel safer, make people feel better about what's happening on their streets? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really important question. There's a number of different centres across the province, including uh, the downtown east side in Vancouver, uh, that are in really difficult shape. And there are a number of reasons for that. But one of them is during the pandemic, a huge number of criminal trials were cancelled. Uh, judges were extremely reluctant to sentence people to prison to wait for trial. And so our prison populations decreased by about 30%. And a lot of those folks who would have been in prison, people who are uh, uh, struggling with mental health issues, who are uh, struggling with addiction, uh, were suddenly in downtown cores uh, across the province. And uh, and uh, businesses have struggled with that. Uh, downtown Business Improvement Associations have struggled with that. And so have the people in the streets. So at the end of the day, uh, to address this issue, certainly... Um, for some folks, uh, they're going to find themselves back in prison as, as the system uh, continues to come back online after what we went through. But for a lot of them, uh, residential mental health treatment and residential drug treatment is going to be the answer. We need to really accelerate that work. And that is what is going to make a big difference in the streets going forward uh, for people. When people talk about safety in the downtown areas, when we look at the stats, uh, generally, uh, things are safer than they've ever been before. Uh, in the last decade, at least, in many parts of the province. Yet, uh, the feelings of safety are challenged by what people see. And they see people who are really sick, uh, who are out in their downtown cores, and it makes them feel less safe. And it's certainly less safe for the people who are not well, who are out there without support. You feel that it is going to get better then? I know it can. So in Vernon, uh, with housing and supports, we reduced, in partnership with the city council there, we reduced bylaw calls and police calls by 50%. In Penticton, where we didn't have a close relationship with the city and we couldn't get that housing done the way that we needed to, they haven't seen that same impact and they're fencing off their band shell and other issues like that. So when I compare cities where we work closely to deliver the services, they're seeing improvements. Where we have cities where we've had challenges uh, working with the local government, we haven't been able to do that. And so uh, there's opportunities there, but also beyond what we've been doing, uh, making sure that that residential treatment is there for folks is absolutely essential. And on a, on a final note, let me ask you, I know that when we talked about this before, you said you had to talk to your family about taking this job on. You have a very young family. How are you going to juggle this now? This is a huge job and you've got young kids. Yeah, I, I was asked uh, in, in 2013 after our loss uh, to consider running for leader. And it was a bad time for our family. My wife had just gone back to school. Uh, we were expecting our first child. I'd just been elected, didn't even know where the bathrooms were in the legislature, let alone uh, how to work government to deliver results for people. Uh, And so we're in a much better place now. Our uh, our kids are seven and two. Uh, We're experienced parents. My wife has done school and she's a practicing family doctor. I've been in government for almost a decade. I know how to work the system to get results for British Columbians. And and this time is significantly different. I'm really excited about uh, the opportunity to work for British Columbians and uh, the support of my colleagues uh, that we can all do this together. And uh, and I hope to have the support of British Columbians through what we deliver for them over the next couple of years. Well, you're going to hear a lot about the family doctor situation than I would imagine at home too. I uh, do. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. British Columbians want to see that fixed too. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. 
That is David Eby, NDP MLA, who now wants to be the next premier running for the leadership. Right now, the only candidate in that race.